Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to today's presentation on MindSpace, an evidence-based prevention practice. I'm your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. In this video, we're going to explore the basic principles of behavior change within what we call a six E's policy framework. And these are the behaviors that we need to engage in order to motivate behavior change. And then we're going to learn about how to use mind space as a tool to increase motivation for change. Public policy, public service professionals, markets, and just our fellow citizens, our community, aim to change and shape our behavior. And we can think about times that that's happened, whether it's been the government or the media or you know, just our general community saying, this is something you need to do. Our behavior has often been shaped in some way. Sometimes it's successful, but other times it has unintended consequences. And we can think of times where there have been uh, behavior changes that we've tried to motivate in people. For example, quitting smoking. You know, quitting smoking, the intended consequence is to improve people's health. Wonderful. The unintended consequence, they start saving a lot of money and it doesn't do so well for the uh, bottom line of the tobacco producers. But those are unintended consequences and you can decide when you're engaging in this implementation program whether those are acceptable or unacceptable unintended consequences. Now, there are other behaviors that we may try to encourage our community to engage in, and the unintended consequences are things like aggression and increased division among the community because you have people who buy into it and people who don't, and they dig their heels in. And we're going to talk about, with the six E's, why this might be happening and how to use mind space in order to create a more cohesive group. Tools such as incentives and information are intended to change behavior by changing minds, but sometimes changing minds is not enough. And I talk in a lot of my videos about how important context is when you are in an environment where everybody's doing something or whether where there are prompts all around, then you may be more likely to engage in a behavior than in other environments. For example, they've done studies, which is why in 
pretty much every restroom, you see a big old sign talking about washing your hands. When people are presented with that, when the context is changed and they have this reminder presented front and center, they are more likely to engage in the behavior. So we do need to consider a lot of the aspects of the context. And we're, again, we're going to go into a lot of these things a lot more deeply in a minute. So first, we're going to talk about the policy framework. And these are the six E's, and these are not in any particular order. Mindspace is a set of tools for changing behavior and increasing motivation, but it builds on the six E's policy framework. In order to change behaviors, we generally need to change policy. We need to decide this is what we want to have happen and create an implementation program. Enable is one of those E's, and that is not the negative connotation of enable. Enable means give people the tools, resources, skills that they need in order to engage in the behavior. If they don't have it, they can't do it. We want to encourage people, both overtly and covertly, to engage in the behavior, both by direct reward and reinforcement, but also through social learning. We need to engage people in the process. And this is actually the first one. We need to connect with people and say, okay, this is an issue that probably isn't, probably needs to be changed. What do you think about it? And what are your thoughts about changing it? For example, starting to exercise. We know that, as they say, sitting is the new smoking. Uh, so changing that behavior is ideal, but people aren't doing it. No matter how much information we put, throw at them. And in, in general, we've also changed the context. Any city you go to that's of any size at all typically has at least one or more gyms in a strip mall. We have the ability to walk. You don't even need a gym. However, people are still not exercising. So we need to engage them and figure out why not? What are we missing here? We need to exemplify. We need to model these behaviors in our media, in our communities, by our leaders. We need to explore what is needed in order to change this behavior. We need to figure out. And then we need to evaluate. Once we implement a program, we need to evaluate the effectiveness of the intended consequences. Are we getting the outputs that we had hoped, as well as the unintended consequences? For example, when we started trying to convince people to stop smoking, that didn't go over really well at first, but we know that people who stop smoking tend to have better health, tend to have lower cancer rates, which goes along with better health. Unintended consequences, they tend to have more money because cigarettes and cigars are expensive. Uh, so that was an unintended consequence, but that's a positive one. We're not going to try to get rid of that. A negative consequence is the impact it had on the tobacco companies. Well, whether you want to address that or not, that's a personal decision. But those are the things we're talking about. There are other behaviors that we may encourage people to engage in that some of the population just embraces and buys into right away and other parts of the population don't. 
We have not effectively engaged them. They feel like they're being forced to do something. And so we need to evaluate why. What is going on with that particular population that is not motivating them to change or that is motivating them to dig their heels in? And how can we address it? So evaluation means really evaluating the landscape as well as the effects of the intervention. Now, MindSpace stands for messenger. Who's telling you to make this change? Incentives that are available, the norms in the community, defaults, and that's that autopilot that I talk about. What is our default response to whatever this is? Salience, how important is it to people? Priming, reminding them to engage in the behavior, like that sign that reminds you to wash your hands. Affect, really hit them where they feel it. And, and I don't mean that literally, but when we are emotional about something, a lot of times our emotional reasoning is our default. So if people become emotionally connected with this behavior change, they're more likely to engage in it. Commitment. We need to elicit public commitments. We need to get people to say, hey, I'm doing this. And we need people to have it, this behavior change become what we call egocentric. We need it to fit with their image of who they are. And we'll talk about how to make those things happen. Mind space can improve motivation by helping people understand how current attempts to change behavior could be improved. So that's that evaluate component and, and looking at in what ways is this behavior change not jibing with somebody's ego, is not jibing with the community norms, is there not enough priming, etc. It helps you identify which types of information are salient and identify measures that could have a considerable impact. Instead of trying to push the same square peg into the round hole, we're going to say, okay, these people over here were motivated by this intervention and, and this message and these tools. But what's different about this other group that is not motivated and how can we similarly motivate them? The most effective and sustainable changes in behavior come from the successful integration of cultural, regulatory, and individual change. So when we talk about culture, we're not talking about necessarily um, assimilation, if you will. What we're talking about is infusing in the culture a behavior in, an, in a culturally appropriate way. So we don't want to... Um, ignore people's cultural beliefs and standards. We want to look at how we can synergize. Regulatory change is generally helpful because it sort of forces the issue. If you have to do this in order to get health insurance, if you have to do this in order to uh, get a job. I know there are a lot of employers now that are smoke-free workplaces where you can't smoke. You cannot use tobacco products if you work there. Uh, so those types of regulatory changes can also be important. And going back to culture, 
Culture doesn't just necessarily mean people. It can mean the culture of an organization. So if each organization starts saying, hey, this is going to be a smoke-free organization, then if people want to work, they're going to have to comply. And we need to motivate individual change. If you put all these hurdles in people's way, they're going to feel very thwarted and angry and frustrated if they're not motivated to change, if they don't see why it's in their best interest, if they don't want to change, or if they don't have the skills and resources needed to change. In terms of psychology or what we'll call behavioral economics, we as humans are predictably irrational, prone to reliable misjudgments, often based on our affective state or context. A lot of times people encounter a situation, it triggers a feeling and they act based on that feeling. They're in autopilot instead of getting into their wise mind and thinking about what should I do based on the facts in this context at this time. There are two ways of thinking about changing behavior. The first is based on influencing what people consciously think about. So that can mean putting ads up. That can mean encouraging them in school. That can mean running stories on the news to get people to think about things. The second is changing the context of a behavior, creating a more hospitable and priming environment for the behavior target. And again, priming just means putting things in people's field of view, if you will, that encourage them to engage in that behavior. There are two distinct systems operating in the brain. The reflective mind, which is what we often call the wise mind, which has limited capacity, but offers more systemic and deeper analysis. Why do we say limited capacity? That sounds awful. Well, the brain can only operate based on the facts that it has, based on the knowledge that it has, and none of us knows everything about everything. So the reflective mind is somewhat limited. The automatic mind, or our autopilot, or technically called the default mode network, processes a lot of things separately, simultaneously, and often unconsciously. If you think about rational emotive behavior therapy, uh, the principle of the B, you have your um, uh, activating event, then the B is the automatic beliefs that happen. So I get in trouble when I say automatic first. Beliefs that are automatic because we have... When we feel a feeling, those schema that we have in the back of our mind are triggered that say, oh, we've been here before. We know what to do. This is what you need to do. We're not thinking about that. When you pull up to a red light, you don't think, okay, it's a red light. What am I supposed to do here? It's automatic. You have a uh, shortcut, if you will, in your brain for how to act. Mind space describes nine influences on human behavior. And we're going to talk about mind space first, and then we're going to talk about how to kind of put it into the six E's. Messenger. Who delivers the message? Research has found that the weight we give to information depends on the reaction we have 
to the source of the information. And I think most of us can uh, remember when we were teenagers and our parents suddenly became very stupid. And, and I don't mean that mean. Um, and then when we got to be in our 20s, we realized that they were actually really smart the whole time. We just didn't want to listen. So expertise matters. You're not going to take information from somebody that you've never met, that has no credentials, that you just start spouting stuff off, I hope. Uh, you're going to give more weight to the people who have some level of expertise. You're not going to go to Wikipedia and just start reading through things and take it as the God's honest truth, hopefully, without checking it against peer-reviewed journals and asking professionals in the field or whatever. Peer effects is another aspect of the messenger. Even if it's not an expert, if it's a peer doing it, then it holds a lot more weight because that's part of the norms of the culture. The healthy buddy scheme is one example of this, and it involved older students teaching younger students healthy living lessons. And they found that, guess what? The younger students were more likely to embrace those behaviors when their healthy buddy was a peer and was modeling those behaviors. Our ability to receive and integrate information from a messenger, even if they're a buddy, even if they are an expert, is also based on the feelings we have for them. We may see them as an expert, However, if we have a great disdain for them, then we are much less likely to take into consideration anything they say. And I think we can all think of examples where this has happened, where there's been a reputable source, but we've had such a guttural negative uh, reaction to them for some reason that we weren't even willing to hear what they had to say. Combining context with information will lead to the most effective behavior change interventions. So it's important that the messenger choose the right context in order to provide this information. And a lot of times it's when people are more relaxed, when they're not already going in defensive, going like when you go to the doctor and you expect them to tell you to change your eating habits or start exercising or whatever, you're already in a defensive mode. Even though that person's an expert, you may not want to hear it. When people are more relaxed and like when they're watching TV, they may take in that information when it's presented in a more passive way and they may start thinking to themselves, hmm. I'm wondering if this is something I need to think about. There were um, minutes that CBS used to do, the CBS um, care minutes or something. I don't remember what they called it. But they would have uh, news anchors and celebrities come on and talk about their challenges with mental health issues and encourage people to go to counseling. So this was happening when people were in the privacy of their own home. They felt safe. They didn't feel like they had to defend against what was going on. Now, incentives. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? Incentives can, are used to motivate behavior change. 
Again, behavioral economics suggests that other factors can affect how individuals respond. We can have positive incentives, like you can do this if you comply, or you will get paid if you come to work. That's a positive incentive. That's a reward. You can also have punishments, and these are negative consequences for failure to change. For example, you will lose your job if you don't stop smoking. Um, And that's a pretty harsh uh, consequence, but I, I'm just trying to give you some examples of tools and, and incentives that have been used. We need to motivate people, but in order to motivate them, we need to understand what motivates them. What motivates me is different than what motivates my husband, which is different than what motivates my kids. So we need to know what un- motivates each individual, each group of people, and target the motivations there. Generally, positive incentives, rewards are better received than punishments. Generally, if you are rewarding a behavior, people feel like they are encouraged to do something. If you are punishing a behavior, people feel like they're being forced to do it. And that often results in a lot of resistance. The value of something as well as the expense of change also depends on the individual's point of view. Not everybody sees the value in exercise or stopping smoking or whatever you're trying to get them to do. Okay, well, we need to consider what do they value instead. And the expense of change, how hard is it going to be for that person and what is it going to cost them? Somebody who's been smoking for 30 years and they're a three-pack-a-day smoker, that's going to be a really hard change. And even if they are somewhat motivated to do it, they may look at the effort required and go, I just can't do it. So we need to consider the expense and figure out how to make it less expensive, less onerous, less overwhelming, less punishing to engage in the behaviors that we want them to do. It is also important to make sure that you're not eliminating a behavior without providing an alternative. If you are asking somebody to stop smoking, okay, well, smoking was serving a purpose. So if you want them to stop smoking, what was the purpose and what could they do instead? If you want them to start exercising, that means they need to stop sitting on the couch watching so much TV. Okay, well, if you want them to stop doing that, they may not want to miss their favorite shows. So what have a lot of gyms done? They've started to put televisions on all of the cardio machines and televisions up on the walls and things. So people are able to feel less like they're missing out on something when they are exercising. We need to consider the economics of this. And economics really refers to not necessarily money, but what am I losing in terms of time, in terms of things I like to do? It's also true, which is why we have the concept of SMART goals, that people prefer smaller, more immediate payoffs to larger, more distant ones. And there's a lot of behavioral um, stuff that I could go into, but for brevity's sake, we will just stay with this for right now. 
but we do prefer smaller immediate payoffs. And so it's better to say, we'd like to see you start doing, reducing your cigarette smoking, or we would like to see you uh, start exercising. And the American Heart Association right now says 150 minutes a week, which is really not that hard. But a lot of people think exercise, that means I have to get my heart rate way up into this high training zone that's not comfortable and blah, blah, blah. What they're asking is that you move, you get out, you walk, you move for 150 minutes a week. And and so that's also important when we get the message out there that we clarify what we want people to do. The first step moving for 150 minutes a week. The next step may be to encourage them to engage in more strenuous activity. Now, norms are pretty self-explanatory. Social and cultural norms are behavioral expectations or rules within a society or a group. And that group can be your neighborhood, your workplace, whatever. Norms can also be explicit where there's a list of rules, a contract you sign, or implicit in observed behavior. Generally, when you go to work, you don't sign a contract that says, yes, I'm going to show up every day. Um, It's implicit. It's implied that if you're hired, you're going to show up for your scheduled, scheduled shifts. Norms in social networks may also have an important impact on behavioral contagion. And that's what I was talking about earlier, where you may have one group that buys in and they see their friends doing it, so they start doing it. And this other group over here that digs their heels in and they say, no, I'm not like them. I'm different and I'm not going to follow what they're doing. So we need to consider what are the norms in that community and how can we um, encourage that community to engage in the behavior? No matter what we're talking about, norms need reinforcing. If, let's go back to going to work every day, showing up on time, that's just sort of an expectation that's not in your contract generally, showing up on time for work. And If everybody starts, you know, sliding a little bit, showing up 10 minutes late here, 20 minutes late there, then new people are going to start doing the same thing. And other people in the company are going to start doing the same thing. They're like, Tom and Bob and Jane are all able to slide in whenever they feel like it. So I'm going to start doing it too. That norm is getting reinforced because those people are not experiencing any negative consequences for coming in late. We want to reinforce the norms of punctuality. So what can you do? How can you reinforce that? For a lot of companies, that means having a clock in where people actually have to, you know, uh, log in on, on a computer or clock in at a time clock because they can't be trusted to show up on time. When they don't log in on time, then they're docked pay. So that's that punishing incentive to show up on time. Campaigns that we do can increase perceptions of undesirable behavior. When we engage in some sort of motivating or attempting to motivate campaign, we might inadvertently motivate other undesirable behavior. 
The boomerang effect can be eliminated by adding a happy or sad face to the electric bill, for example. And what are we talking about with this um, concept here? With the electric bill, if people were um, using less electricity than their neighbors, they got a happy face. If they were using more electricity than their neighbors, they got a sad face on their electric bill. But they found that the people who were using less electricity before they put the happy face on there, if they were using less than their neighbors, they started saying, hey, well, I can use more electricity because, you know, why should I suffer when nobody else is? And so the addition of those faces, what did it do? It triggered that affective response where, hey, the electric company's happy with me. I'm doing a good thing. So they were less likely to try to regress toward the mean. Now, defaults are your autopilot. We often go with the flow of preset options. We go with the flow of our schema. We do what we've always done. Many decisions we make every day have a default option, which are selected or path of least resistance. I do things in the morning based on how I've always done them. I know how to do them. There's no extra effort required. I just go through it. When we're asking people to change, that requires more energy. That requires thought to say, no, I'm not doing this. Think about if you uh, drive to work every single morning and you pull out of your neighborhood and you turn left to go to the office. Well, it's Saturday and you are going to the park with your kids and you pull out of your neighborhood and you turn left like you're going to the office, even though the park is turning right. That's that autopilot. Your brain said, hey, I know what we do when we get to this intersection. We turn left. And it's important to be able to engage that part of your brain and override it and go, no, today we're going right. Public policy must be individualized to the people served to maximize benefits to citizens. And, and that really comes down to figuring out what people need in order to implement these changes. If we ask them to implement changes and they don't have the resources in the community, they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the support that they need, it ain't going to happen. We need to change public policy so people start engaging in this new behavior. People start accessing these resources and the new behavior starts to become autopilot, starts to become the default. For example, some people by default get up every morning, get dressed and go to the gym. That's their default. They don't even think about it anymore. Salience. To avoid getting overwhelmed, we tend to unconsciously filter out a lot of information. And I think most of us recognize that when we're on autopilot, especially, we are not being mindful. And when we are not mindful, then only the really important things are registered in our brain. We're more likely to register stimuli that are novel, accessible, and simple. Simple is one of the key things, but novel is also important. When I want to remember to do something, if I write it on my bathroom mirror with an eyebrow pencil or something, I notice it for the first couple of days. 
but then I habituate to it. I get used to it. It's there. I ignore it. I don't even pay attention anymore. So it's not novel. We need to have stimuli that change. Another example is the owl statue we have out to help protect our chickens from hawks. If we leave the owl statue in the same place for too long, the hawks start to recognize, hey, that's not an actual owl, and they start to ignore it and dive bomb our chickens. On the other hand, if we move it around and occasionally change which statue we're using, then the hawks tend to stay away. So it's novel. We need to make sure that the brain keeps registering this as, oh, hey, that's something new. It needs to be accessible. Obviously, if people don't see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, whatever, it ain't going to have a, an effect. And it needs to be simple. Don't give them a one-hour video. <laughs> don't give them a six-page article. Keep it simple. Bullet points, memes, as much as I hate them, um, people could take things in small chunks, and the chunks seem to be getting smaller. As, as we develop technology. So it's important that we present information in a small enough chunk that people will listen. I found that uh, advertisements on video platforms tend to be watched to the end if they're 15 seconds or less. But if people have to watch for 30 seconds or, oh my gosh, a whole minute, uh, unless they're super engaged, they're not going to watch the ad. They're just going to click skip. So it's important to really engage people in that first three to six seconds. And you can only do that with a simple message, something that is right there that catches their attention that says, hey, this is important to you. We're more likely to be able to encode things that are presented in ways that relate directly to our personal experiences. If you're telling me all the reasons I need to quit smoking, if I smoked, then you need to relate it to my personal experience. I've had multiple family members die of cancer. So if you tell me that that will reduce my cancer risk, well, that relates to me. That's got my, that's got my attention now. We need, whether it's going to help people feel safe or empowered or loved or healthier, we need to help them relate it to themselves. If you tell something, somebody, this will help you have more energy. Well, if they don't think that they've got bad energy right now, they're not going to be really motivated. So you may need to start by saying, do you have a hard time getting out of bed? Do you have difficulty with brain fog? Do you have to drink multiple cups of coffee through to get through the day? Sounds like your energy is low. If you do this, whatever this is, it will help improve your energy so you feel like your younger self again. That's much more persuasive than just saying, here's this thing that can increase your energy. Salience also explains why unusual or extreme experiences are more prominent than constant experiences. Remember, we talked about the no novelness, novelty of a stimulus. If you see the same billboard every day when you're driving to work or the same ad every day when you're watching your favorite show, you're going to start tuning it out. So it's important to make sure that the information is novel. Now, if it's extreme, then that will also get people's attention. When I'm walking through the forest, if I see a snake, that's not necessarily 
all that novel. I see snakes occasionally. If I see a cottonmouth uh, snake, a poisonous snake, and it chases me because those little suckers are aggressive, I'm going to remember that. And next time I'm walking down that path, I'm going to be looking out for that particular snake or maybe not go down that path at all. Priming. People's behavior may be altered if they've been primed by certain cues beforehand. People who see ads with beautiful people drinking alcohol and looking happy are more likely to buy alcohol. And that can be enhanced in the context of where the alcohol is being sold. If you still have pictures of beautiful people or cruise ships on the labels or on posters on the wall. The amount eaten may be based on the size of the food container. If people are given a plate, and I think most of us are guilty of this, we go to a restaurant and we're given a plate full of food, which is generally far more than any one serving. But we see it as a plate full of food and we see, it, see ourselves saying, this is what I'm supposed to eat. And we eat the entire plate because we've been taught that you eat what's on your plate. That's, that's a serving, even if that serving is big enough for six people. So it's important to consider that. One of the tips and tools that I use in my nutrition classes is to start using a salad plate instead of a dinner plate. And a lot of people, when they shrink the size of that plate, they don't feel any hungrier. They actually often feel less stuffed and icky <laughs> after they eat but they still feel satisfied and satiated because they filled that plate, but it was half the size. The cues must be salient to the person. They found when you put calories on a menu at a restaurant, if the person doesn't understand the concept of calories and they don't know how many calories they need in a day and how much is too much, the calories on the menu is kind of irrelevant to them. They're like, okay, there's 1,236 calories on average. Whatever, no biggie, give me three of those. When, uh, so we need to make sure people have the information that they need in order to use the cues that are out there in order to process and make effective decisions based on the cues that are out there. Whenever we initiate behavior change, we must also seek to understand how it may be unintentionally priming people to act in certain ways. One of the keys for behavior change a lot of times is increasing anxiety in people. When people feel uncomfortable staying the same, they're more likely to change. However, if you increase their anxiety, yet they don't feel like they can change or the people around them aren't changing, then it can prompt a lot of anxiety and aggression. And that is obviously an unintended consequence. So we need to figure out how to minimize unintended consequences. As I mentioned before, affect is a powerful force in decision-making. People's moods cause unrealistically pessimistic or optimistic judgments. Uh, this is another thing we've talked about before. Most of this is not new information, but it puts it together in a nice package. When you're in a bad mood, you're tending to see the world through that negative or pessimistic lens. You are expecting the worst. When you're in a good mood, 
you're often expecting the best. You're more able to notice the good things that are going on. When you're in a bad mood, you're in that fight or flight kind of place, you're going to notice the threats. When you're in a good mood, you notice the threats, but you also tend to notice the good things. You can notice the squirrels and the butterflies and the bunny rabbits or whatever it is that you like to notice. Affect is heavily influenced by context. So what prompts a threat response in one situation may not in another situation. I had a client that I used to work with and he was an avid user of certain illicit substances. And I said, okay, tell me about what's different during the times that you're not using versus when you are using. And he said, oh, I never use in front of my kids. Okay. And this is another example of some of those unintended consequences that were beneficial. I said, okay, well, you said your son's been having some problems in school. Uh, What does he like to do with you? And he said, he loves to go out and play basketball after dinner. All right, great. So for the next week after dinner, instead of retreating to your study or wherever, uh, why don't you go out and play basketball with him for a little while? Sure enough, they started doing that and he intended to go out and play for like 30 minutes and they would generally end up playing for an hour, hour and a half. And then he would come in and it was time to get ready for bed. And a lot of times he didn't even bother to think about, let alone engage in using that illicit behavior. The unintended consequences, his son's behavior improved. He started improving his relationship with his son. So it was a win-win-win in that particular instance. When we're talking about affect, one of the things we can ask is that question, what is different when you're not doing this behavior? When you're not sitting on the couch watching TV, what are you doing instead that you like to do? Emotional rather than fact-based responses often drive decisions. For example, a picture of an attractive smiling person Increased demand for a product, which is why they usually have people selling products and smiling from ear to ear. Pictures of germs on hands often promote hand washing. When you start thinking about having all these little crawly things on your hands, you kind of want to wash them. People are more receptive when they believe there's a problem and you have that solution. So again, increase their anxiety a little bit, not too much. Don't have them, you know, terrified. We just want them a little uncomfortable and provide the solution. If you arouse anger or anxiety without providing solutions, it often causes an increase in problematic behavior. It could be anxiety. It could be aggression. It could be sleep problems. It could be um, failure to comply. It's like, well, I can't fix it anyway, so screw it. Commitment. People tend to procrastinate and delay taking decisions that are likely to be in their long-term interest. Yeah, it would be great for my long-term health and well-being for me to exercise every day. But if I'm not motivated to do it, if I'm not committed to do it, then I'm going to put it off. I'll start doing it next week. Next week, I'll start going back to the gym. Commitments that are public and result in penalties for failing to act may be helpful. So if you go and you join a gym, that's a public commitment. You've met those people at the front desk. You've said, I'm going to start coming to the gym. And if you don't go to the gym, 
you still have to pay for your membership. So that's another area. And a lot of gyms have, have it where when you sign up, you're committed for a year. So when you make that commitment, you're like, all right, I'm going to spend this money. It's going to motivate me. It's also easier to get people to commit to buying a product after trying a free sample. And the principle underlying this is the desire for reciprocity. But think about when you go to the grocery store and you get a free sample. You hate to take that free sample and not at least consider buying it. Or when you go to a gym and you try a free week, then you're more likely probably to sign up with that particular gym. And ego. We behave in a way that supports the impression of a positive and consistent self-image. We see ourselves in a certain way. We want other people to see us in that way and believe that we are good people and we're consistently good. This means that attempts to change behavior should connect change to self-esteem and a positive self-image. How is engaging in this behavior going to be in line with or resonate with who you are right now and improve your image to the public. The foot in the door technique plays off people's desire for internal consistency. When a salesperson gets their foot in the door, they get you to try something or listen to them for five minutes, then you've agreed to hear what they have to say. Then when they want you to invite them in so they can, you know, give them, give you their whole spiel, you've already agreed to listen to them this long. So if you're going to be consistent, I guess, yeah, okay, fine. You can come in and give me the whole spiel. People are also biased to believe that they're better or more resilient when, uh, than another person in various ways, which may require policymakers to go beyond what might be considered optimal in regulating some behaviors. A lot of people may think, well, I only do this once in a while. So I am safer. I am better off. I am healthier than this person over here who does it every day. Or I only do it occasionally. And this person does it every day. So it may be important to target those people that think they're at lower risk, even though they're not, uh, it may be more important to make that message more poignant. So how does this fit in with the six E's? First, we want to explore who is the target audience or who are the target audiences. When I used to do prevention in behavioral health, we had two, well, actually three target audiences because we worked a lot in the schools. We were targeting behavior change in the children, but their parents, because, you know, they were children, we also needed to motivate the parents to support the change and the teachers. So we had three different target audiences that we needed to consider. We needed to identify what the problems were. If there was school failure or there was a lot of uh, bullying and aggression in the school, for example, or substance use. All right, those are the problems in the school. What function are they serving? What is maintaining those behaviors? What are the norms that are maintaining those behaviors instead of discouraging them? And what is the context? You know, let's look at the context and see if there's something going on um, in this environment that may be prompting these particular behaviors. 
Then we need to identify alternate alternative behaviors that work for each group. The behavior that works for the child may be somewhat different than what we're going to ask the teacher or the parent to do. And we need to be consistent and considerate, recognizing that teachers don't have that much time. You know, they've got 20 kids, 30 kids in a, in a room, so they can't give a lot of individualized attention. Where parents have fewer children to pay attention to and can give more individualized attention and reinforce the message at home as well as at school. Sometimes children will learn behaviors and they will do them only in one place or the other. They behave one way at home and some completely different at school. So we want to evaluate, we want to explore what is the difference in these two contexts. What keeps them from doing the behavior at home and motivates that behavior at school? And how can we change that? We want to find ways to make the alternatives consistent with people's ego and social norms. So if bullying, for example, is part of the social norm and they see themselves as, you know, uh, Billy Badass, then it's going to be harder to encourage him them to engage in a behavior that is less aggressive, less bullying, because that's not consistent with their ego and that's not consistent with the norms of the school. So we need to figure out how can we motivate a change in these behaviors, in these norms, which goes back to what is the benefit that Billy's getting from being a bully and what alternative incentives can we offer in order to motivate alternate behavior. We need to enable by making sure the infrastructure is there with adequate and culturally appropriate facilities and resources. Pretty self-explanatory. And we need to focus on rapid cycle change and smart goals. Remember I said those goals need to be shorter term with more frequent rewards. Rapid cycle change says, okay, we're going to make a small change here. We're going to see how it goes. We're going to evaluate if it has the intended consequence great, and then we can build on it. Um, and if it doesn't, then we haven't committed six months or a year of planning to this whole overhaul and it goes in the garbage. We want to exemplify, that is lead by example, teachers, counselors, parents, we need to help them have the tools to understand where and how they can lead by example. If you're telling people not to hit and you're hitting, that doesn't lead by example. Um, we want to encourage by providing support and motivation through legislation, information, incentives, and choice. There's lots of ways to encourage people, but we need to figure out what is motivating and encouraging for them. We need to engage the person and the community with salient, deliberate messages from effective messengers with permission. And that is so important, that with permission aspect. If we are just forcing things on people, they, they haven't given us permission to give them information or advice or new tools to use. They're like, who are you? And go away. I, I don't care about what you have to say. 
So we need to get the permission. How do we get the permission? We increase uh, their anxiety a little bit. They help, we help them start seeing that, that, that there's a problem or we ask for their help. We say we've noticed that there has been an upsurge in substance use in this school. And we know that's a problem for your children, their learning, their health, their safety. We would love to have your input as part of a focus group to figure out you know, what we can do. So we're getting their permission to start opening this avenue of discussion. And then we can start presenting ideas and skills and tools and figuring out, again, we're engaging them, we're getting permission, and we're also figuring out what motivates them. And then finally, evaluate and adapt. With rapid cycle change or any kind of change, you don't just do it without looking and going, hey, is this having an effect? You go to the gym, you work out, you're typically looking to see an improvement in the way your clothes fit or a change in your weight or a change in your strength. You're not just going and doing it and going, eh, whatever, for most people. So we want to evaluate the impact of our efforts, our progress. We want to evaluate setbacks and what we need to do to address them. And we also need to take in new information. And with all that stuff, we need to adapt for moving forward. The six E's provide a framework to develop a change plan. Mindspace highlights internal and contextual motivational influences on behavior. All change, however, must effectively be tailored to the individual and anticipated as well as unanticipated consequences must be evaluated and considered. 